Welcome to the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This is a weekly pod that will tactically and technically analyse a different footballing topic or theme in every episode. But what does that actually mean? Well, think of The Athletic's Michael Cox. Think of his regular analysis of footballing styles and themes and trends. Brilliant stuff. Now think of his books, The Mixer, Zonal Marking, bestsellers. Mix in some special guest experts every week and boil that down to a liquid and syringe it into your ears. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me today, Michael Cox. Michael, your own quasi-eponymous podcast. It's what you dreamt about as a child. Yeah, even before podcasts existed, you're right. Yeah, there's there's not many names uh, of footballing terms that aren't podcasts now. So uh, we just had to stick with zonal marking because everything else was taken. Do you think you are a bigger fan of zonal marking as a tactical option than you would normally be if you hadn't called your blog zonal marking all those years ago? Yeah, I think that's true, to be honest. And, and also just because so many quite annoying pundits are dead against zonal marking, so it automatically kind of endears you to the concept. Whereas actually, I don't mind either way. It's about what the players are, are comfortable with, I think. I've always said, track your man and you don't need to worry about zones. A zone has never scored a goal. That is not the sort of stuff we'll be hearing on this podcast. <laughs> Let's hope not. Not for the first few episodes, at least. We've also got Liam Toomey here. Liam covers Chelsea and more, also for The Athletic. No man knows more about Jose Mourinho and his work than Liam, aside from Rui Farrier, who's unfortunately unavailable, managing in Qatar. Uh, Liam, you're also involved with The Athletic's Chelsea-related podcast. Yeah, um, we've got a podcast starting called Straight Out of Cobham, (laughs) which I'm proud to say was my idea. (laughs) Uh, And that will feature Matt Davis-Adams hosting with myself, Simon Johnson and Dom Fifield, kind of alternating a little bit of squad rotation going on week to week, but hopefully some, some pretty consistent Chelsea insight for everyone. And you'll know by now that The Athletic are offering a whole host of other club-specific podcasts, as well as Ornstein and Chapman. There's going to be so much audio content coming to you from The Athletic. If you'd like to subscribe to The Athletic site... You can get 40% off with the offer code UKPOD. That's all in caps and it's all one word, UKPOD. The big question for us today, following his appointment at Tottenham Hotspur, is Jose Mourinho actually a defensive manager? We'll be going through his career across different nations and with different squad profiles with a focus on style of play, looking to give a a little more nuance to this discussion than some of the absolutes that you may read or hear elsewhere. And we'll end, of course, with a discussion on his fit with Spurs and this Spurs squad and how we might expect this Spurs team to look under Jose Mourinho, the man who stole the show, the special one, the dynamo. (laughs) Now, let's get started. Uh, With respect to short spells in charge of Benfica and Uniao de Leiria, let's start with Porto. It's January 2002 when Mourinho takes over. Two and a half years later, Michael, they win the Champions League. Tell me about this earliest of Mourinho teams. What was his approach here? Well, I looked at this a lot recently for book research and I was quite surprised how good a footballing side Porto were, to be honest. We remember them as a uh, quite defensive counter-attacking side. They were certainly very tight at the back, didn't concede many goals. But what I didn't realise was uh, Mourinho took over and gave this very grand speech to the, the Porto fans and the journalists at his press conference. Unlike him? Yeah, and he basically said in that, 
you know, we're going to play possession football. We won't stop working until we play attractive football the fans want to see. And I guess that makes sense in terms of, you know, looking back at his uh, his time at Barcelona, working under Louis van Gaal. There's some great quotes from Xavi who says, you know, at Barcelona, you know, we were speaking the same language in footballing terms. And by and large at Porto, they do play attack-minded football. And it's only really in the latter stages of that Champions League win where they go a little bit defensive. Mm. But I think it's important to remember that at that time, Champions League knockout stage football was quite different to what it was now. You know, we're accustomed to these incredible 4-3s and comebacks and really topsy-turvy games. Games then were quite tight. They were often 1-0 in the knockout stages. And I don't think Mourinho's side at that point really seemed any more defensive than you would uh, associate any decent contender for the Champions League. Liam, it's towards the end of his time with Porto that Mourinho becomes a man on the radar of of Europe's top teams. And one team looking to get to the top table of European football was Chelsea, of course, still very fresh under Abramovich and with Claudio Ranieri not quite living up to expectations. In terms of Mourinho and what attracted him to Chelsea, what can you tell us? Was there anything to do with style of play or was it more a case of this manager is doing an incredible job with a club and he seems like a serial winner. Let's get him in. Well, I think Roman Abramovich was a new owner, a very brash kind of new owner that wanted to make a statement. And as soon as he'd won the Champions League in 2003, Mourinho was the ultimate statement hire. There was a lot of talk heading into that final that basically it was an audition for the Chelsea job between Mourinho and Didier Deschamps. And it's interesting to think if that final had gone a different way, how differently things might have panned out. But in terms of what he'd achieved with Porto and in terms of his sheer charisma, which I think maybe wasn't immediately obvious to people in England until he'd arrived. We'd had a little flash when when he did that interview at Old Trafford and running down the touchline and goading Ferguson, but we hadn't really seen much of it. He certainly ticked all the boxes for Chelsea, I think, in terms of the way they were trying to take the club and take the team and and really change the mentality to to become champions. And it's worth pointing out as well, Abramovich fell in love with football supposedly having seen a couple of really ding-dong 4-3 games and thought, this is brilliant. He didn't think... I want a really defensive manager and a defensive team. He wanted to entertain. And Mourinho's Porto side, by and large, did that. You look at the statistics from their run to the, the Champions League in 2004. 10 of 13 games, they dominated possession, which you don't think of that kind of statistic as, one, something Mourinho uh, really cares about, and two, you know, not that his teams really do. But I think with the exception of three games where they took the lead very early and then played on the counter-attack, they dominated possession home and away against Real Madrid, home and away against... Uh, very good Manchester United side. So he came to Chelsea with a reputation as, you know, I think broadly a, a positive manager. I guess more than anything else, a very successful manager considering what he'd done with Porto. But we didn't think of him yet as a really defensive manager. And sorry, just to say, I think a point you made really well in your piece was that he guided Deco, who at mm-hmm. that time was a bit of a journeyman player, to the, probably the best form of his career. He had some good moments at Barcelona and at Chelsea, but he was sensational for Porto on that run as a number 10, as a true number 10. Yeah, and I think whenever Mourinho's had a player like that at his disposal, I'd look at Schneider and Mesut Ozil, they've, they've pretty much always had the peak of their career under Mourinho. Maybe he didn't have that so much at Chelsea in that first spell. Lampard was the closest thing, obviously more of a number 8 than a number 10. But those were the tools he had to work with. And he, you know, he did the same with Lampard, turned him into, you know, a 15, 20 goal a season midfielder, which beforehand he hadn't really got close to that. Possibly not part of the narrative these days <laughs> when we discuss Mourinho, but a good point. So we know that he's done a remarkable job at Porto, a, a, 
a billboard higher for Chelsea as they look to to reach the elite of the European game. And it's two league titles with Chelsea, their first since 1955. You cannot argue with the transformative impact that he had on that club. But Liam, in terms of the style of play, remind me how that first period in charge of Chelsea looked because when you look back at the league table, specifically the goals against column, it's hard not to be blinded by the incredible defensive performance of this team. They were a phenomenal defensive team. 15 goals conceded all season, 25 clean sheets, which is absolutely outrageous. Um, I think that that's one of the few records Manchester City didn't break yeah. <laughs> two years ago uh, that's, that still stands and it, it could stand for quite a long time. So they were famed for their for their defensive resilience and, and he brings in Ricardo Carvalho to, to partner John Terry and really builds a massive, massive foundation there, I think, for, for what the team was. But there was also an evolution through that season where I think if things had panned out slightly differently with Ian Robin's health, we would have seen a lot more expansive football from Chelsea that season. They end up scoring 73 goals in the Premier League, which nowadays is a really paltry total. But there was a run, I think, from about September to maybe October, November, when Robin and Duff were absolutely destroying teams, particularly in transition, which obviously has become Mourinho's hallmark. Uh, and then Robin gets injured, a tackle that still looks outrageous from Aaron Raquena all these years later against Blackburn. And Chelsea become a different team because Mourinho went back to to relying on that foundation and really grinding out one nils. And I think as well, again, you have to consider the context of the time because in 2004, it's not just Mourinho who arrives, it's Benitez at Liverpool as well, who was quite defensive, quite tactical, similar kind of manager, I think. There was also uh, Jacques Santini, who had a very brief spell at Tottenham, but he was almost the most extreme. There was a period where Tottenham's games were just one nil, nil nil every week. And I guess the thing that, the irony about uh, Mourinho's career is that he uses the park the bus phrase to criticise Tottenham for being too defensive. So he created it, but yeah. not talking about his own style. Exactly. So it's this nil, this really dreadful nil-nil, I think a Saturday lunchtime kickoff at White Hart Lane, just barely any chances. And Mourinho says, yeah, they brought, brought the bus and they left the bus in front of the goal. You know, they didn't come forward from their defensive block. And, and he's almost outraged that a team could play like this. But of course, later particularly with Inter Milan, I guess. Um, he's the he's the guy who becomes synonymous with that phrase. And Didier Drogba thrived under Mourinho as well. Was this the start of us understanding what sort of a striker Mourinho wanted, potentially even needed to succeed? To a certain extent. I think the first season he was kind of in and out of the side and in and out of form. And to be honest, I actually preferred Chelsea at times when they played Good Johnson up front. And there was a little bit later in the season that I think is quite interesting and maybe forgotten where... Mourinho plays Drogba up front and brings Good Johnson back into midfield. So you've got Good Johnson and Lampard with obviously Makaleli sitting just behind and two wingers as well. And you can't find many examples, I would say, until uh, Guardiola arrives and plays mm. De Bruyne and David Silva, where you've got two such attack-minded midfielders in a three like that. So at times they were playing pretty sparkling football towards the end of the season. As Liam says, I think Robin really was the guy who, if he was in there, they were really dangerous. Um, but I think in the central positions was, uh, you know, when Good Johnson played there, he gave them something different, a kind of guile and creativity they didn't have from elsewhere. Well, Good Johnson was kind of a, a unique player in a lot of ways. He was sort of, sort of a number 10 in a striker's body, really. Um, had, had brilliant link-up play and, and instincts to drift between the lines. And, and you see in Mourinho the the aspect of his management that really values that. Just to quickly say on Drogba as well, I think if you actually look at his stats in the first two seasons, he doesn't crack 20 goals under Mourinho. He does a lot of other things well. 
that enable the team to function. But it's not until Chelsea actually sign Andrei Shevchenko and, and he gets <laughs> a little kick up the backside from a, a rival uh, that Drogba really explodes in, in English football and scores, I think, 27 goals that season. So. And the wide men were very involved in scoring. Duff and Robin, you've referenced. But he makes it difficult for his wingers at this stage uh, in this Chelsea team, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, people often speak about the the creative number 10s not getting a run. As I've said, I think that's pretty unfair when you look at what he's done throughout his career. But yeah, it's the the wide players who, by and large, have to just embrace the defensive side of things, particularly with Duff. And, and Joe Cole as well was kind of moulded into a really hard-working player. Again, we see that later at Inter Milan where he gets Eto and is, is playing him really deep. But yeah, they're the players who I, I kind of would, would worry for at Spurs to a certain extent looking forward. You know, Son a player who, who likes playing wide, but really is a forward rather than a wide midfielder. You wonder how much defensive work he'll have to do because that's just what Mourinho makes his players do. It was almost kind of Pavlovian conditioning with Joe Cole. <laughs> Mourinho basically scolded him in public for several months until he finally got the, the Joe Cole that he wanted, mm. kind of broke him down and reformed him into his own image. And actually it, it worked because I think 2006 was Joe Cole's career year for Chelsea in England. He was outstanding. Yeah, this was where we started to get to know some of Mr Mourinho's man management or motivational tactics, which were at times unusual and at times very effective and potentially less so throughout his career, something we'll touch on a little bit later. And just lastly on that, period at Chelsea. Now Claude Makélélé arrived at Chelsea a fantastic player. Potentially Mourinho understood the strength of Makélélé in that Makélélé role more than previous clubs looking at you Real Madrid. Uh potentially, yeah. I mean it's it's worth saying that Ranieri was the the man who who brought Makélélé in. He he clearly saw his value in that position, but Mourinho understood just what a transcendent and unique player he really was in in European football at that time. The, to just sort of shade 20 yards either side of that little central area in front of the defence. He he was unparalleled at, at winning the ball without even really having to tackle a lot of the time. He was just always in the right position and it his role in giving Frank Lampard the freedom I think to to be able to attack forwards knowing that they were safe in behind I think can't be understated. Yeah it's funny when you actually read what Makaleli says about his own role he's really focuses on his attacking qualities and his possession his uh, qualities in possession. He says there's always been defensive midfielders but the difference between me and them was I used to play as a more attack-minded midfielder I know how they like you know receiving the ball. And I don't think he really gets enough credit for that. We think of him as a purely defensive player and he was very good at shielding the defense but actually was very intelligent with his use of the ball and again it's another way I think that we maybe don't give that Chelsea side enough credit for being at times a very good footballing side. What about his time at Inter Milan, at Michael? A Champions League win, again, two Serie A titles. What about the style of play, though? Is it more of the same that we saw at Chelsea, or is there a, a, a difference? I'd kind of compare it to how he did at Porto, actually, obviously, where he also won the Champions League, where there was quite a big difference between the way they played domestically and the way they played in Europe. And I just think that this has become almost the default. If, if you're... a for managers that are criticised for being defensive, you can't win league titles these days by being defensive because the number of points you have to get is so high. I mean, I remember when, when we were growing up and, and maybe a little bit beforehand, there was this mentality that you'd win your home games. If you went away from home and got a draw, you'd probably done a, a decent job. But now, you know, the points required to win the league has become 100 rather than 80, which is a huge difference. And I just think if you're going to be a title contender and win the league back to back, as he did with Inter... 
you have to be positive and you have to be proactive. And they played different in Serie A to in the latter stage of the Champions League. Even in terms of system, they often played 4-3-1-2 with Schneider just behind two forwards. Soweto was up front with Milito. And it was in the Champions League against, you know, famously against Barcelona in that second leg and in the final where they retreated into basically Eto and Pandev in, in almost supplementary fullback roles. But it's also worth remembering that they didn't actually win that game in Barcelona. They lost 1-0 and they went through because they'd won the first leg 3-1. Okay, there's some caveats with the volcano forcing uh, Barcelona to travel by bus, etc. But Inter genuinely outplayed them in that game. And it was, I think, an example of how, you know, for me, Mourinho is a pragmatist. There are defensive managers. Someone like Tony Pulis is a defensive manager. You look at all his teams, the goal per game rate is usually one and no more than one. Mourinho can't play like that because he has to, you know, to win titles, to defeat top class opponents. I think you have to be more proactive. So we'll touch on the question again. Is Jose Mourinho actually a defensive manager? As with many tricky topics like this, we're starting to see it's a bit more nuanced than that. There's a little in column A and potentially a little in column B as well. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that interside was actually quite good to watch when you when you watched them week in, week out. I remember them destroying Milan 4-0, I think, in the derby. And it's a side of, you know, usually they had four really attack-minded players, usually Schneider, Melito, Eto, Pandev, sometimes Balotelli. You know, these are really good players to watch. And, you know, it wasn't like they parked the bus every week as they did against Barcelona week in, week out in Syria. And Liam, the core of that inter-team are still the generation for whom it felt Mourinho was built to manage and he got so much out of so many of those players some already referenced some not Matarazzi talks about him as if he's his father uh, basically at this point we're still seeing Mourinho leaving style to one side at the moment undeniably a serial winner of football matches and a a motivator of of men yeah you could argue that that team and that season was actually his peak the peak of his career and I I think that inter team was probably the closest any team ever got to being the purest form of Mourinho's image on the pitch I remember watching both legs of the tie they played against Chelsea and just feeling that particularly that centre-back partnership of um, Walter Samwell and Lucio was just completely impregnable it was absolutely incredible they were so solid and Wesley Schneider picking passes in transition was absolutely surgically precise he 2010 was an amazing year for him he he probably had a very good case for to win the Ballon d'Or actually if unless you want to give it to Messi every single year (laughs) um, but yeah I think I think that inter side were really really good and uh, it's fair to say Mourinho has probably not approached those heights since the Real Madrid years some people look back on as the the period that broke him and you talk about Inter potentially being the prototype Mourinho team this Real Madrid side Michael hit triple figures for goals in all three La Liga seasons that he's there was this Mourinho with the shackles off or more a function of the individual quality and the imbalance of the league well I think the interesting thing here is he goes from Inter who are a side who basically don't particularly care about attacking football their highest point was winning the European Cup with Catanaccio 40 years beforehand. So they're completely up for winning the league or winning the Champions League with defensive football. To Real Madrid, who twice sacked Fabio Capello, who had won the league with them because they weren't playing good enough football. Mm. I mean, that's a commitment to attacking football. But then there's a slightly peculiar thing where he's brought in as this kind of anti-Barca coach. And he's almost compelled to play a different style of football. So he's got to be attacking, but he can't be attacking like... Barcelona. So they end up being this really great counter-attacking machine. 
And I must say, I think uh, I think they're quite an underrated side because I think people remember how it ended for Mourinho at Real Madrid. But he went there, you know, being told you're up against Barca. This is the greatest club team we've seen for 40 years or whatever. And within two years, he'd won the league. And at times they played brilliant football. Obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo on the left. He got the best out of Mesut Ozil the same way he'd done with Deco and Schneider beforehand. And although they didn't play as sparkling possession passing football as Barcelona, when you look at their goals tally, and they outscored uh, Guardiola's Barcelona in the two seasons Mourinho and Guardiola were there together, mm. I think it's tough to say that was anything like defensive football, again, with the probable exceptions of the big games, in this case, which were the Classicos. Would you say even with all those goals scored, the attacking strength of the team came in transition? You called them an excellent counter-attacking team. So potentially watching them didn't feel like you were watching a, a fluid attacking team in possession, but he had them incredibly adept at making the most of, of space and potentially playing in a way that created space while the opposition had the ball. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And I think it's interesting that the transfers that summer, he got rid of Raul and Guti, who were players who, you know, Real legends who wanted to slow the play down. And two of the players he brought in were Kadira and Ozil, who just really shone in that counter-attacking Germany side that got to the, the semi-final of the World Cup. And that immediately signals a, a shift in the way they're going to play. But uh, yeah, I mean, they had a lot of attacking potential in the side. And when they did need to, to break down a, a deep defence, as they often did at the Bernabeu, I mean, 17 teams really in Real Madrid come to the Bernabeu and really play deep. And they had Xabi Alonso, who I think actually got to a better level than he was at at Liverpool. He's a very good player at Liverpool. But had a couple of dodgy seasons at Real. He was really, one, I think much more consistent and two, really bought into the way that Mourinho wanted to play. And Mourinho absolutely loved him. Alonso was always the guy he brought over to give tactical instructions and was almost like his manager on the pitch. Liam, we're talking a lot about Mourinho as a tactician in terms of his personality, his character, which I think has defined him as much as his record at times how much do you think and having covered him as a journalist as well that period of competition with Pep Guardiola had an impact on on Mourinho as a person it did seem to change him uh, you speak to people at Chelsea you know who were familiar with him from his second spell and they did see a different person come back from Spain it, it does seem to be the, the turning point in his career where he, he clearly was incredibly successful for, for a short amount of time. But I think the experience, particularly with that Real Madrid dressing room, of dealing with personalities who, particularly the guys who'd won everything with Spain, suddenly he found a group of players that weren't answerable to him, really, and had their own culture of success, playing a very different style of football with the national team. And he, his way of management, of tactics, was being questioned like never before. And I think for Mourinho, even more so than a lot of the other big-name managers we see now, it was all about the cult of personality. And as soon as that began to be questioned, I think the aura began to get chipped away. And then you add to that all the acrimony of the actual battle with Guardiola, and he obviously wears Guardiola down, but I think it wears Mourinho down as well. Uh, And by the time he gets to Chelsea, he's just... A slightly diminished manager, but also a diminished um, personality, I think. In that return to Chelsea, part two under Mourinho, third in his first season back in charge, and then title winners, of course. If you look at the goals for, largely the same as his first spell, goals against, still pretty good, maybe a couple more than 15 in one season, which is always going to be hard to match. How does this 
Chelsea team's shape and style differ from the days we spoke about earlier of Makalele, Duff, Robin, Drogba, Lampard. What did this team look like? I think it was still a team fundamentally built on defence. He, he obviously inherited an older John Terry. Uh, so I think that, that necessitated a deep defensive line, um, which he'd occasionally done in his first spell, but that he was a little bit more free to, to play a little bit higher up when Terry could move a little bit more. And uh, and of course, the first season he's at Chelsea doesn't have a consistent goal scorer either. He's still lumbered with Fernando Torres. They bring in Samuel Eto'o, who's, who's pretty much at the end at that stage. Uh, and it's not really until he gets Diego Costa and Cesc Fabregas in that summer of 2014 that you really see the til- team he's tried to build. And I think the the thing that probably sums up Mourinho in that second spell, well, there's probably two things. One ostracising one matter who was Chelsea's player of the year for the two previous seasons absolutely outstanding but he wanted a number 10 that would foul people (laughs) (laughs) and so he makes Oscar central to his team because he wanted a a destructive number 10 who could create transition opportunities like we talked about and then there's also behind that the midfield axis of Matic and Fabregas two completely different kinds of players but Matic was exactly what Mourinho wanted in that role. Certainly not a, a Makaleli, he a little bit more expansive in his passing, certainly more physical in his style, but someone who could cover the the tactical errors of, of Fabregas next to him and allow Fabregas's creativity to, to really make the difference. Michael, this feels in formational terms, if that's a phrase, a bit more of a 4-2-3-1 than that 4-3-3 that defined his early spell at Chelsea. In that title-winning season, in fact, in both seasons, I don't remember as much discussion about entertainment with this Chelsea team. Were we so used to what Mourinho had to offer or were we focusing on other things? I don't remember there being criticism about a style of play particularly. Well, I think the first half of that title-winning season in 14-15, they played some brilliant football. I remember from the opening weekend, was it Burnley they got a winner and Fabregas got an outrageous assist. And For Andre Scherler. Yeah, and, and the first first half of that season, I thought they were absolutely brilliant. Again, we saw a little bit of a defensive shift, well, probably quite a big defensive shift in the second half of the season. And I do think Mourinho tends to look towards, you know, OK, what am I going to need to do in the Champions League quarterfinals and semifinals? And they end up playing a little bit more defensively. I think he's also often concerned that his players physically can't play attacking football throughout the season which is something we saw into the players were really running on empty towards the end and had to defend deep but yeah they they played some sparkling football and I think the interesting thing here is how much he embraces uh, Fabregas who is a player Guardiola didn't really get on with at Barcelona because he was positionally indisciplined and tactically struggled to accommodate him and Mourinho sometimes plays him deep as Liam says sometimes he's moved further forward in bigger games to bring in a more kind of functional player like Mikel or Ramirez alongside but Fabregas you know again I'd say comes close to he had a great spell at Arsenal of course but you know between that and now and uh, and Mourinho's second spell you know, was was sometimes going off the boil and sometimes struggling at Barcelona. Mourinho really gets him back towards his best. So again, I, I struggle to really see this as a, a defensive Chelsea side. The slight irony is the game uh, people probably remember him for is denying Liverpool the title effectively the, the first season, which is one, a, a complete anomaly in terms of how they played, but also in terms of the starting eleven. I mean, he was basically... Yeah, he was basically resting the entire side for the Champions League semi-final and you know, came in against the Liverpool side and clearly just wanted to spoil the party, which has become almost Mourinho's kind of default role. But that certainly wasn't how this Chelsea side played overall. They wanted the clowns. 
That's what he said. <laughs> that was that was Mourinho the troll at his mm. absolute height that game. Um and I think it was probably the 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 purest distillation of his his defiance just, just it was almost a confidence trick on Liverpool. They, in reality, they didn't need to win that game, <laughs> but he knew that they, the way they'd been on this win streak and trying to blitz teams in the first twenty minutes. He said, "I think he said, uh, I want two yellow cards for time wasting in the first fifteen minutes <laughs> uh, because he wanted to slow Liverpool down, and and it worked." So some of those methods that we are told and perhaps we accept have become less effective over the course of Mourinho's career are still working. In this season, certainly, this title-winning season at Chelsea, there's a piece that you've contributed to upon his appointment at Spurs about his man-management style. And plenty of Chelsea players from that era happy to quote about how much of a difference he made to that team. John Terry, Branislav Ivanovic, and a lovely little mention of how he distilled himself into Diego Costa as well onto the pitch in that time. Yeah, uh, you can see the players that Mourinho manages to reach, he really reaches them and and they will do absolutely anything for him. And you've seen that at pretty much every club he's managed. But I think what you've seen as the as the teams have gone on, as his career has gone on, is that that group of players has grown smaller and smaller. And there are the number of players that he can't reach that his approach doesn't really resonate with and maybe that he even completely alienates oh. has grown. And often it seems to be the most talented players as well, which really, really hurts him in the long term. Um, Nothing too glowing from Eden Hazard in that piece, I I noticed. No, although interestingly, I think they do have a pretty good relationship. And I think if if Mourinho had gone back to Real Madrid, I don't think Hazard would have been um, too fussed about that because he still says that the season he had under Mourinho in 2014-15 was the best season he had at Chelsea. It wasn't his best statistical season, but he feels it was his highest performance level. And eventually Mourinho wore him down as he tends to wear players down and, and Hazard sort of felt overwhelmed with the pressure of carrying Chelsea. But overall, uh, Mourinho's approach was was pretty successful, even second time around at Chelsea until it emphatically wasn't in those last six months. And his spell with Manchester United, which already feels like a long time ago, the fast-paced football cycle, I suppose, uh, at fault there. But thinking back in preparation for this, I remembered that there was a period of time under Mourinho at Manchester United where, although I try and watch almost every live game of football I can watch, I would actively avoid watching Mourinho's Manchester United because I considered it a waste of two hours of my life. Was that an overreaction? Was that harsh? My memory of this team is... Fairly grim, I must say. Yeah, I don't think there was real character or style or personality to this team. It just seemed a very loose collection of parts. Um, I think he struggled with a couple of things. The role of Pogba, both tactically and in terms of his importance in the dressing room. He brought in Ibrahimovic, which I don't think was a bad move, and he scored plenty of goals. But that maybe held back Martial and Rashford, who are the kind of players who Mourinho should be appreciating. You know, brilliant counter-attackers, very speedy players. But I tend to give Mourinho a slight pass on this one I must say because I think United were in such a shambolic state and I think he was slightly burdened by this uh, this talk from Manchester United supporters of you know he doesn't fit the traditions of, of our club playing attacking football well I must say, I think there's a lot of rose-tinted specs going on there because the Sir Alex Ferguson days, United had a reputation for playing dreadfully and somehow getting the win at the end and you know, there's plenty of games where United were 
you know, winning on the counter-attack and very good on the counter-attack and, and excellent defensively. I don't really remember them as this kind of sparkling Guardiola-esque footballing side. So I've got some sympathy with Mourinho because I don't think that he really uh, was any more defensive than than United were for much of the 90s and, and early 2000s. The difference, of course, was they were just not winning games. I think it's also worth saying that Manchester United is probably the first club Mourinho manages where he can't find at any stage a defence that he trusts. Mm. Whether the defenders that he buys or the ones he inherits, he can't find a combination that works. And for a manager who always builds his teams from the back and and tends to be reactive and, and, and trying to go in transition, I think that's fundamentally... What what doomed that team when you when you're relying on Chris Smalling, Phil Jones, and Eric Bay's always injured, and Victor Lindelof comes in and is kind of middling. You know, he he, he never found a, a rock that he could really build his team on. He did have somewhat of a renaissance with Juan Mata, though, who you talked about earlier. Yeah, but completely bizarre, really, that, that he decided to use Mata, and I think particularly in his first season at United, uh, I don't think that that really benefited them too much because using Mata, particularly when Ibrahimovic was leading the line, gave United one of the slowest attacks in the Premier League. And and for a manager like Mourinho, who depends on speed and, and transition, that, that seemed a strange choice. His handling of Mata was just as bizarre at United as it was at Chelsea, but just in a, in a different way, I think. And, of course, Mata had declined as a player by then. How much do you think the United fans enjoyed their trip to Chelsea, Michael, that time where they essentially played a, a back six? Yeah, that was a funny one. I mean, I guess the context of that is no one had really worked out how to stop the wing-back system that Chelsea played, which, you know, was so effective that meant they really ended up with a front five with Alonso and usually Moses uh, on the flanks. And, you know, a lot of teams tried to match them up and and played through at the back, and that sometimes worked. But I think it was difficult to find a, a system that worked that didn't end up with the forwards or the wide midfielders, I should say, tracking back all the way. And, you know, it was, uh, of course, felt particularly odd because the wide midfielders that day were Martial and Rashford, who were two forwards naturally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that some of his tactics in, in those games against Chelsea worked quite well, particularly the, the use of Herrera as a man marker. One game it didn't work very well and the other game it very much did. And I think United were only the second side to beat uh, Chelsea since they switched to three at the back that season. This is something we've we've come to expect. If you're a wide midfielder in a Mourinho side, there's games where you're going to have to be in your own third for most of the game. So that's, uh, yeah, something that the likes of Son have have maybe got to look forward to. Finally, Michael, as Tottenham Hotspur manager, Jose Mourinho replaces Maurizio Pochettino. What is the contrast between Pochettino's Spurs and the team that he's built and how you see the current Jose Mourinho taking this Spurs team forward? Well, I think there's a big contrast from when Spurs were at their peak, where they're playing high up the pitch, they're pressing very intensely. I don't think they've played so much like that in in recent times. Maybe you can say that's because of fitness and tiredness. Of course, the other argument is they haven't been playing like that and they haven't been playing very well. They haven't been winning games. But I'm I'm not sure the, the contrast is that stark. I think Mourinho will be very happy to inherit good centre-backs, first and foremost, maybe not in form, but... Order World and Vertonghen, I think, have been the best partnership in the league for the, the last few years. Whether they'll stay for next season, we'll have to wait and see. And I think there's a quite a few players that Mourinho will probably appreciate. There's some very 
kind of useful functional midfielders like Sissoko and Dembele, maybe Eric Dyer, who it seems he wanted to bring to Manchester United. Um, there's a couple I'd worry for. I, I'm not sure there's many examples of him bringing on a player like Harry Winks, you know, a deep lying passer. Maybe Xabi Alonso is the best com- comparison, but, you know, for now that's quite flattering to Winks, that comparison. But um, I think there are some tools there that suggest that he can make a decent go of this team. And it's felt recently like the end of a cycle for this Tottenham team. There's been so little squad turnover in this Spurs side compared to most other teams in the Premier League. If Mourinho is tasked with an update, if you will, a refreshing of this squad, Liam, his recent record in the transfer market and his reputation for paying over the odds for players versus Daniel Levy's reputation for not paying for players if he can help it. Does that give you cause for concern from a Spurs point of view? Yeah, I think it's probably the case with every manager Tottenham appoint, but particularly with with Mourinho, how the Mourinho-Levy axis works or doesn't work will be absolutely fundamental to whether whether this is a success and even if it is, how long it lasts. Uh, I think you, you can't single out Mourinho for the prices United paid for players. I think Ed Woodward's got a lot to answer for on that. Mourinho's not the one doing the deals. Um, but certainly in terms of the players that he targets, if you're targeting players in that sort of 27 to 31 age bracket, you are going to pay more generally because you're paying for what the player is right now. If you're trying to make, if your entire transfer policy is about win now, you're probably going to pay a premium for that. And Daniel Levy has traditionally shown himself to be someone who is not willing to do that. So that's immediately attention. There have already been suggestions that they've told him that he won't have much money to spend in January. So it could be quite good, actually. It could be an opportunity for us to see a bit of a throwback Mourinho who's forced to work with what he has. He's made a big play of saying that he really likes the squad Tottenham have now. He's clearly going to ask them to do different things than what Pochettino was demanding from them that, I mean, there were loads of stats about how little United ran <laughs> under him. So I think it's fair to say those Tottenham players won't have to run as much uh, and that might suit someone like Harry Kane. But uh, it will be really, really intriguing to see. And uh, I think the most interesting aspect for me is the fact that he's completely changed his backroom staff mm. because for a long time, that was the biggest question of Mourinho was, does he have fresh ideas in his ears? And, and now he does. And Michael... You touched on his relationship with the number 10s in his career. Looking at the Spurs squad and leaving aside Christian Eriksen, who we don't really know what his future is, for someone like Deli Alley, you had a theory on why Mourinho could be the man to get the best out of him in a, nominally at least, number 10 role. Yeah, I mean, Ali's a, a peculiar player. I, I quite like him. I, I think when he was at his best, he was a, just a brilliant all-round midfielder, but for someone who has often played as a number 10, he doesn't really do the traditional number 10 things. He's not a between-the-lines creator. I think he's a bit of a box-to-box midfielder and a bit of a goal-scoring midfielder. But when you look at what Mourinho said about what he wants from a number 10 during his time at Chelsea, and he was speaking about Oscar, he says, with the ball, he wants them to be a nine and a half, so kind of a you know secondary goal scorer, and without the ball, an eight and a half, so more of a midfielder than a number 10. And that kind of suits exactly what Deli Ali is all about. So... I guess the question mark is whether he has the energy and the stamina at the moment to play those two roles simultaneously because he's, you know, one of many players who kind of looks like he's running on empty. But I think in terms of style and possibly in terms of his character, I think Deli Ali's the kind of player who maybe needs a bit of a kick up the backside and isn't the kind of player who will be offended if he gets that. I think Mourinho could, you know, work really well with him the same way he has with so many other attacking midfielders in the past. It's your 
podcast, really, at the end of the day, Michael. <laughs> and we started today with the question, is Jose Mourinho really a defensive manager? After everything we've gone through, chronologically, where do you stand? I mean, I would say that he is a pragmatic manager rather than a defensive manager. But I think football has changed so much since we first got introduced to him, particularly with the rise of Guardiola and to a certain extent Klopp. And now we have a situation where almost every fan base demands attacking football. That used to be the preserve of really a few of Europe's elite sides, whereas even now he can go to someone like Tottenham. And with respect to Tottenham, and I know that they played great football in the 1960s when they were winning things, I don't associate much of Tottenham over the past 20 or 30 years with playing sparkling attacking football. And yet some of the supporters are saying, you know, does his methodology fit our traditions which I think is uh, the kind of thing that you just wouldn't have expected back when he was at Porto so look I, I think Spurs or Saudi have been mocked for, for not winning things and Mourinho does have a track record of winning things um, and I dare say that if he were to bring in a couple of cups you know maybe the supporters would be more satisfied than, uh, than we're hearing at the moment Liam just lastly we've gone through the career and it sort of feels like even through doing it the flow is fewer successes and potentially a reduced effectiveness of style of play that we recognise from early Mourinho and potentially a reduced effectiveness of the man management skills of Jose Mourinho. Michael sort of touched on it earlier, the amount of points and therefore goals you need to score to win a title these days feels like the game has changed somewhat. Do you think that Mourinho has changed enough to maybe get to a point where he could win another Premier League title with Tottenham? Well, I think at the moment the, the Premier League title question is is really out of his hands because Manchester City and Liverpool have pushed the bar so high that un, until one or both of them come back to the pack, I don't see Tottenham with what they have now or with what they could add in the transfer market being able to reach that level or any other club in England for that matter. He'll certainly make them more competitive, I think. Uh, as long as the players embrace, embrace his methods. And what's interesting about this is for the first time in a few years, I think Mourinho's going into a dressing room where he can legitimately say, I've won, you haven't. So I think that, that that will be interesting to see. And as we've alluded to, the fact that he has new ideas in his coaching staff may help him. We've seen the rise of systemic attacking football in recent years, and that's the one big drawback of, of Mourinho's approach. But this ratio of trophies to baggage has been going in the wrong direction for a while. And I think it's fair to to ask questions heading into this about whether Mourinho can actually end up rescuing what was turning into a Mourinho season. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing I'd say. I think the question here is his man management, not his tactical ability. There's been a lot of chat about him being behind the times tactically. And maybe that is true to a certain extent when you look at how City are playing under Guardiola. But go back just before that. Who's won the league? 2017 Conte. Okay, played good football at times, but I think a very good counter-attacking side. Before that, Leicester counter-attacking side. The year before that, Mourinho's Chelsea. So I'm not as convinced as some people that he's you know, out of touch with how to win a Premier League title. Not that I'm saying he will at uh, Tottenham because that, I think, is quite a big rebuilding job. And that's it for this week's Zonal Marking Podcast. Thank you to Liam. Thank you to Michael. And we'll be back with a different episode every week of the Zonal Marking Podcast, touching on any number of topics from across the world of football, tactical, personal, club-specific, nation-specific, dare I say it, with Michael Cox and a special guest every week. There's another whole host of Athletic podcasts available to you if you'd like to subscribe to The Athletic, where well, you can certainly do so. To hear this show and many more, 
Sign up and get a 40% discount code now by using the promo code UKPOD. Our show and all the other shows mentioned will be available for free from all the usual UK providers.